The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, good morning, church. My name is Paul, one of the pastors here at Heritage, and I would encourage you, if you brought a Bible this morning, to open up to Mark chapter 13. We have been in this series now for several, several months, journeying through the, the New Testament Gospel of Mark. We, we started this back in September, and we are now on the final eight weeks of the series, and we've got some cool things planned for us, and we're very excited about our plan to get into the book of Hebrews this coming fall. Today, for the next two weeks, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13. This is often called the Olivet Discourse. The reason this is called the Olivet Discourse is because this is a discourse or a logical teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples atop the Mount of Olives uh, in in one of the final days before his death on a cross. You can see the parallel account of the Olivet Discourse in in Matthew's 24th chapter and in Luke's 21st chapter. For the sake of our our study, we have decided to break up this discourse into two weeks. We're going to look at verses 1 through 23 today, and we're going to look at verses 24 through 37 next Sunday. But but this discourse is is one unit. In fact, in, in Mark's gospel, it is the longest unbroken discourse in the whole gospel. It's meant to be received as one teaching, but for the sake of time and the ability to unpack this. We're going to look at it over the course of two weeks. So for today, though we're only going to be teaching verses 1 through 23, I want us, though it's a long chapter, I want us to read this in chapter in its entirety, verses 1 through 37. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings there There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. And bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house and take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as as has not been from the beginning of the creation 
that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead many astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. Verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Well, now that that's clear, and uh, we all know exactly what Jesus was talking about there. Who has questions after hearing that? Be honest with me. Who has questions after hearing that teaching? I know I do. I was reflecting on this. I've been in, uh, kind of walking uh, in close uh, connection to, with the church for 24 years. I've heard hundreds of teachings on the Olivet Discourse. And in anticipation of this sermon and next week's sermon, I've spent a considerable amount of time over the last month or so just listening to different teachings, reading different authors, sitting in this text. And I've got to tell you, after all that time and after all that work, I still have questions. When we approach this passage, we recognize that it is a challenge to interpret. It is a call for humility. This is one of the most disputed sections in all of Scripture. And there are so many different interpretations of it. Listen to what one scholar writes. He says, In the Gospel of Mark, there is no passage more problematic than the prophetic discourse of Jesus on the destruction of the temple. No other passage more problematic than this. Another preacher, scholar, says Jesus' Olivet Discourse is by far the most difficult passage in the book of Mark and one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament. So this is a difficult passage. It's a call for us as Bible readers and interpreters. It's a call for humility as we approach this text. I believe God, he has given us his word, not that we would be confounded and confused. God has given us his word that we might understand it. He means for his word to be understandable. And as we approach a text like this, we might not get everything right. We're going to try really hard, but we can use our minds. We can read the scripture, and with humility, we can ask God by his spirit to meet us in this place that we will hear the things that he desires for us to hear in the preaching of his word. Amen? Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Father, we ask in Jesus' name this morning and in the power of the Holy Spirit that you would help us hear from you the things you desire for us to hear as we read and study and sit under the authority of this word. 
We also ask, Lord, that you would bring unity to our church and to the church as we study this often debated and often misunderstood passage. God, bring unity. Would you give us as men and women seeking to hear from you today, God, would you give us hearts of humility that we may hear from you? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, over the last two and a half years, so much has happened that has not only just disrupted our lives, but has caused fear and uncertainty in the hearts of many people. Uh, I've had many conversations, as I'm sure you have had, many conversations uh, with men and women who have struggled to comprehend the reality of the impact of the things that have transpired just very recently. In the last two, two and a half years, there's been global pandemic. There has been political disruption. There has been the unfolding and the tearing apart of the social fabric where things just seem like they're turned on their heads. There is financial instability. There's global war and the threat of, of nuclear war. There's financial crisis. And honestly, one of the most troubling things I've seen in the last two and a half years doesn't necessarily catch headlines, but I have seen again and again as men and women who once professed Christ have turned their backs on the faith and have walked away. This is troubling. And as I talk to men and women, as I talk to people of our church, and as I talk to my friends out there in the world, people are understandably afraid. They're unsettled. They're deeply concerned. They're unsure about the future. And many in the church in this church, but in the church, have been asking, especially for the last two and a half years, we have been asking, what does God have to say about all of this? And there's many, rightly, who are looking for stability in the face of fear and uncertainty. In other words, I, and maybe, maybe this isn't you, but what I, what I sense as I interact with my brothers and sisters in Christ, as I hear people saying, Paul, would you just give me assurance that God is still in control? And that the world isn't just spiraling into utter chaos with no hope at all. Give us assurance that God knows what's up, that there is still reason to hope, even with all these troubling trends and headlines. And so as we think about living in the midst of calamity and challenge and chaos in uncertain times, the Bible is not silent on how we are to do that. Jesus said these challenges would come, and he's given us things that we can anchor to, that we might have hope, that we might have reason for hope. And we are called as his disciples to trust in his word. And so the Bible gives us direction and hope in the face of horrors that unfold before us on a daily basis, it feels like. And when we look specifically here at Mark chapter 13, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, them then, in the first century, Jesus is speaking to them about future things. He's speaking about the cataclysmic realities that awaited them in their future. And he gives them instruction for how to think about and how to endure in the midst of these horrors. Now listen, we are studying today in this passage future things. The word that we use in kind of in church circles or like maybe in a little bit more like academic religious circles is the word eschatology. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that word. This chapter, the Olivet Discourse, is a study of future things. It's a study of the end times. It is eschatological. It is a study of what the Scripture teaches about the end times. And so as we study the words of Jesus speaking of these future things, we, we have to be aware that there are uh, some dangers. If eschatology is a road that we travel as we study the future things, the, the prophetic teachings in the Scripture, there is a ditch on the right side and on the left side of that road. I'll call the ditch on the right side eschatomania, and I'll call the ditch on the other side eschatophobia. Those aren't my terms. I borrowed that from a friend. 
And so the ditch is that we can, we can get off the rails when we start having these discussions. On one hand, we can overly obsess with the teachings about the end times. They call that eschatomania, where we see every single thing as a sign of the end. And we got the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other hand. And we're incessantly and obsessively trying to connect this information in the scriptures with this current event. And that's all we want to think about. That's all we want to talk about to the abandonment of what it simply means to be a disciple. That's one ditch. And there's another ditch on the other side. It's the willful ignorance of future things. And some people, and I've tended towards this camp myself, and when I read prophetic words in the scriptures, it's challenging to interpret. It's hard. There's not unanimous agreement within the church. And so the temptation can be just to like plug your ears and say, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to worry about the end. I just want to, I just want to know how to live today. And I think both are ditches we need to be careful of when we study any sort of eschatological thing, but especially when we start looking at the Olivet Discourse. We want to stay on that road. And so in our passage today, Jesus gives this teaching to his disciples so they can think properly about the future. Now, I think about this writing. It's interesting. Because on one hand, Mark is recording for us a conversation Jesus is having with his disciples, just four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And so on one hand, it's a discourse to four men, Jewish men, as they're looking at the temple. But on the other hand, God also inspired Mark by his spirit to write these words. These are actually the living words. This is God's word. And so there's a reason why God has inspired Mark to record this discourse. And if you look at who the original audience was of Mark's gospel, it was non-Jewish Roman converts living in Rome. What was happening in Rome in the first century? Massive persecution. And these Roman Christians, as they're, under, as, they're, as they're crumbling under the oppression of the Roman Empire, are wanting to know, what does God have to say about us in the midst of this calamity and these challenges and this chaos? And also, God inspired these words for us today. But listen, I don't want to be guilty of, oh, I think Jeremy said, um, qualifi- uh, death by a thousand qualifications. But when we come to a text like this that is so debated, I think we need to kind of lay the landscape a little bit. And what I'm going to lay today is some foundation that we'll kind of carry into next week as well. As we look at this, is this text, there, there's an observation that, that I think I want us to make up front before we begin teaching through the passage. And here's the ob- observation. Jesus speaks for 32 verses here. And, and these, these disciples have asked about what are the sign of the times, tell us about these future things, tell us about this. And, and 19 times Jesus offers imperatives. He's less focused on when these things will happen, and he's more focused on how it will look when these things are unfolding. Nineteen times in these 32 verses, Jesus is giving instruction to his disciples for how they are to live in light of future realities. One scholar puts it this way. He said, this, the fact that he does this, the fact that there are these 19 imperatives in this discourse, it makes it abundantly clear that the main purpose of the Olivet Discourse is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future, but to give us as disciples practical ethical teaching. In this discourse, Jesus combines eschatology with exhortation, and the emphasis is on the exhortation. He's preparing his disciples, and beyond them, then us today as well, the church today, he's preparing us to live and to witness in a hostile world. In other words, Jesus did not speak these words, and the Holy Spirit did not inspire Mark to write down these words so that we could know all the specific events of the future. The Olivet Discourse is Jesus instructing his disciples how he wants them to live in light of the realities that are coming. I'm going to say it one more way, and I'm quoting a friend here. 
This word, the Olivet Discourse, this is not so much about what Jesus wants you and me to know about the realities of the future as it is about how Jesus wants us to live now in light of the realities that are coming. So that's the lens through which we approach the Olivet Discourse. I have to make another qualification. There's two things I don't want to do today as a preacher. Number one, I don't want to pridefully claim that I have this text figured out and teach it as such. I've sat under that teaching. In fact, for years, I only heard one perspective on this passage. And then when I got to seminary and got around other Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming, worshiping Christians, and I saw that there are different interpretations, it was a stumbling block for me. And, And far too many times I've sat under pastors who've handled this text with pride as if their view is the only view. I don't want to do that today. At the same time, I don't want to try to cover all the bases that I just end up giving you a big mishmash of convoluted nothingness. So I'm going to have to teach it with a certain interpretive lens. Listen, there's virtually zero agreement among preachers and pastors and Christians and scholars concerning this text. It's a call for us to be humble. So let's start by identifying three camps. Camp one. Let's put this camp here when it comes to the Olivet Discourse. Camp one, this camp says that the entirety of what Jesus teaches here, verses 5 through 37, camp one says the entirety of the Olivet Discourse is speaking about future things to them then, the disciples on the, on the Mount of Olives, and future things to us today. So this camp says everything that we read today, everything that we read has yet to come true. These are prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. That's camp one. It's really awesome, smart people are in this camp. Guys like John MacArthur, Uh, Guys like Greg Laurie, David Jeremiah are in that camp. Smart men who love Jesus very much. Then there's Camp 2. Camp 2 kind of takes a different approach. Camp 2 says that the entirety of what Jesus taught on the Mount of Olives, verse 5 to 37, was future to them then, but past for us today. This camp says that the prophetic teachings of Jesus, the predictive prophetic teachings of Jesus at the Olivet Discourse, was all about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., some really smart, godly men are in this camp. Guys like N.T. Wright and R.C. Sproul live in this camp. And then there's Camp 3. Camp 3 holds to this view that the, the teachings of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, verse 5 through 37, was entirely future to them then, those disciples on that day, but only in part is future to us today. This camp holds that part of what Jesus taught was fulfilled when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and part of it has yet to be fulfilled as it pertains to the second coming of Jesus and the end of age. That's camp three. And so as I thought about that, I look at the list of people, John Piper, Albert Moeller, D.A. Carson, Timothy Keller, Matt Chandler, these are men that hold that view. So I mention these leaders to help you understand there are really awesome men and women who have influenced Christian culture who don't agree on this passage. It's a call to humility for those of us that are approaching it today. Gospel-loving, well-meaning, missions-minded Christians are in all three camps. And if I could just be honest, we are not all on the same page or all in the same camp as elders at Heritage. We disagree on this passage, and we think it's fine. So how should we approach it? Well, I wanted to put a little diagram on the, on the board for you today. It's a, it's a target. So there are certain things, certain truths, absolutes, core doctrines of the Christian faith that we die over. Things that we, that we do not have room to fudge. There's not room for disagreement. We die over certain doctrines. When it comes to this discussion, what are the things that we ought to die over? Well, we ought to die that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who was born of a virgin and is both fully God and fully man. We ought to die over that doctrine. 
When it comes to this discussion, we ought to die over the fact that Jesus Christ died as the sacrificial substitute to pay the penalty for sin. That's something we don't fudge on. That's not open for debate. We ought to die over the fact that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will one day physically return. And today we ought to die over the hope that we all have that when Jesus returns, we can look forward to the future consummation of all things. And so as Christians, what do... when? There's all these different people and in, in all these different interpretations of the Olivet Discourse, but what do we all agree upon? We all agree upon the things I just said. The coming of Jesus, the virgin birth, fully God, fully man, his substitutionary atoning sacrifice upon the cross, the sinless sacrifice who paid the penalty for death and sin. We all agree that he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, and we all agree that he's coming back. That's all in the die-for category, where there's lots of debate in the Christian church is what happens from the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ and the consummation of the kingdom. There's a million opinions about what that looks like. And so then we start going into these outer circles. They're not necessarily things to die over, but there are doctrines and there are convictions that Christians can have that are reasons to divide over. Maybe it's not a salvific issue, but you know what? This is just such a strong conviction that we sometimes divide over it. Things like the signed gifts, things like the role of women in ministry, different things like that certain churches choose to divide over. When it comes to the interpretation of the Olivet Discourse and these eschatological discussions about the end times, they belong in the debate over and the discuss with category. We do not and we should not divide over these issues where there is zero consensus within the, within the Christian church. We, we should discuss them, debate them. I think we're sharpened in those discussions and in those debates when our Bibles are open and we're trying to figure out what the scriptures are telling us, but they're not reasons to divide. And I want to caution us against that because my guess, when I start to share with you my perception of this text is there's a lot of you in here that are going to say, I do not hold the view Pastor Paul holds. And that's entirely fine. I invite that, in fact. Come to me with humility and we'll talk about it. I'll buy you coffee. Sincerely. It's a call to humility. And now I know when I start to tell you that there are three different camps on how people approach the Olivet Discourse and approach eschatology, there's some of you that have sat in traditions or in church cultures where there was only one perspective that was given to you. And that's a bit of a shock when you hear that there's other ways in which people read this, especially this passage itself. Today, I'm going to argue for camp three. Not discounting camp one and camp two, but I personally am going to argue for camp three, and I'm 51% sure I'm right. <laughs> me and, me and uh, uh, Mike Robinson, one of our elders who teaches theology at Pacific Bible College, we both talk about our experiences of being in seminary and sitting under the teaching of professors that had different perspectives than we walked in with, and we're just like, this guy is crazy! I've only ever heard one perspective, but the reality is, again, with humility, and I, I hope you hear in my heart, is I, I'm approaching today's passage in humility. All that is a very long preamble of the introduction. <laughs> It's the introduction for next week's sermon, too, so you're not going to get all this next week. So this last weekend, my family and I, we went camping up at Lost Creek Lake, which is, by the way, 100% full, and it's beautiful, and I love it. Yeah, that's great. Thankful for the rain, man. Jumped off cliffs, had a blast. We're driving home on Highway 62, going kind of into Eagle Point, heading towards the Rogue Valley, and I look up and I see the backside of Roxy Ann. And on the other side, kind of, kind of mirroring Roxanne, is Wagner Butte, which is a beautiful mountain that's kind of next to Mount Ashland. And I'm looking at both mountains. In fact, I got a picture of it. I actually made this, I made this diagram in my office. So we got the near horizon and the far horizon. 
funny story. I tried to take a picture. It didn't work. I tried to find something online. It didn't work. So yesterday in my office, I took construction paper and scissors, and I made that. I took a picture. We put some different filters on it so we'd have this visual for today. But that's Roxanne in the near horizon, and that's Wagner Butte and, and Mount Ashland in the far horizon. That's what I saw on Highway 62 driving into the Rogue Valley, right? And I'm looking at two different horizons. There was a time when I look at the front or the near horizon, Roxanne, I've climbed it a hundred times, and I'm looking at that little knob thinking about it. And there were some times that I looked at the back horizon or the far horizon. I look at Wagner Butte and Mount Ashland, and I'm, I've been on both of those mountains, and, and, and sometimes I'm focusing on the near horizon. Sometimes I'm focusing on the far horizon. And sometimes I'm kind of just looking at both as just like a cluster of mountains. Now listen, when we read Mark 13, it is my humble belief that there are two horizons in view as Jesus is teaching. There is a near horizon, and part of what Jesus says, I believe, humbly, part of what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, he is speaking of the near horizon that pertains to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And then there are times when Jesus is looking at the far horizon, his return, the end of the age, the consummation of all things. And there's times in which I think there's a strong, argument, a strong argument to be had that he actually looks at both horizons at the same time. We'll get into that here in a little bit. And he's kind of switching back and forth as he walks us through the Olivet Discourse. And we'll see next week, I think, primarily in verses 5 through 23, Jesus is speaking of the near horizon and the fall of Jerusalem. Again, if you disagree with me, we'll talk about it afterwards. And I believe that there is a switch that takes place in the Olivet Discourse at verse 24. And then Jesus switches his perspective to the far horizon, primarily. And he starts to speak about these future things that await all believers. And then, as we get ready to approach the passage, I think there are four things that I want us to see as we walk through this text this morning. And and the points of the sermon, the last three points of my sermon today, are driven by the imperatives. These 19 commands that Jesus told the disciples to do. He's more concerned, remember, on how we ought to live in light of the future here. And so, so the last three points of my sermon today are going to focus on those imperatives. But the first thing that we see, and if you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to take this note, is Jesus talks about how, and he says that the temple will be destroyed. He says that in verses 1 through 4. He, sees that the, the, he says that the temple will be destroyed. Now, he was making this prediction around 32 AD or so. And it was in 70 AD that that exact thing happened within that generation. And it's with incredible accuracy that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. He says in verse 2, do you see these great buildings? There will be not one left here, not one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And if you're a student of history, you know that's exactly what happened. The temple was burned. It was torn down by the Romans. But, all, but listen to this. When the temple burned, there was so much gold that was a part of the temple. The gold melted. And it ran down between the stones. And so that later, people trying to get that gold literally tore the stones apart to have access to that melted gold. And so very literally, not one stone was left on top of another. Exactly what Jesus said. It's hard for us to comprehend how shocking this would have been to his first century audience, to these disciples. For several days, these men had been with Jesus on the Temple Mount after the triumphal entry, witnessing Jesus turning over tables. They had witnessed him confront the religious leadership and their false piety. They no doubt felt the tension that there was a growing resistance to what Jesus was teaching. And so they had seen that, but they had also heard Jesus teach about what it meant to be a disciple. 
Jesus was attacking false religion, but he was also upholding true religion. If you've been a part of our teaching over the last three or four weeks, you've heard us kind of highlight the teachings of Jesus on Temple Mount during Passion Week. Chapter 11, Jesus called his disciples to fruitfulness over flashiness. He called his disciples to to live and experience a faith-filled, expectant prayer life. He called his disciples to, to walk and live in forgiveness. He called his disciples to have a deep concern for the lost. As we got into chapter 12, there was this upholding of the authority of Jesus, and we are invited to surrender everything to Jesus, give our entire selves to him, live in light of eternity, and love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others. And then last week, you had this picture of just authentic worship that he calls his believers to. So I know that all of the discourse gets much of the headline when it comes to this section of Scripture. But if you look back at the teachings of Jesus, he used most of his breath upholding a vision of discipleship that he wants his church to walk in. And so now here in verse 1, as the disciples are making their way out of the city for the final time, through the east gate, it had no doubt been a draining several days, and this had been a draining day. And I imagine how Jesus was feeling. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke 2? When his parents found him in the temple when he was 12 years old, he called it his father's house. How disheartening for Jesus to enter the temple as a grown man and to see what it had become. These, these religious leaders, these priests and these Pharisees and these scribes, instead of leading people to God, they were leading people away from God. How heartbreaking for Jesus. How heavy-hearted must he have been after three days of confrontation with these religious leaders. And as he enters the temple, heavy heart, or as he exits the temple, heavy-hearted, Jesus was preparing to die. He was preparing to be a ransom and to make a way for people to get back to God. And so as they're leaving, perhaps one of the disciples, it doesn't say who, perhaps that disciple was heavy-hearted also. And he he looks up and he sees the beautiful temple, and maybe he's trying to bring levity to the moment, point something beautiful during during a difficult few days, and he says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, and it was spectacular for sure. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes about the the spectacle, the magnificence that was this temple. It was incredible. It took him 46 years to build it, white marble and gold. It blinded you when the sun shone off it. It was an incredible architectural marvel. It was a wonder of the world. It was the jewel of Jerusalem. And as this disciple is looking up and gushing about the temple, Jesus shockingly says it's all coming down. Every stone is coming down. Now, that's basically what Jesus had figuratively been doing the previous three or four days. He confronted the religious externalism of the religious leaders, condemned it, exposed the godlessness of it, their whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, dead on the inside. And when he says the temple's coming down, this is like a metaphor for what Jesus has already done. Beautiful on the outside, godless on the inside. It's coming down just like this religious system's coming down. The temple's time is over. There's this picture in the book of Ezekiel, which is a, it's a book of prophecy, chapter 11, verse 23. It's a picture of God's presence abandoning the temple. In verse 11 of, of Ezekiel, we read that the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood at the mountain that is on the east side of the city. In Mark 13, Jesus is on the east side of the city. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's looking down. We're about 150 feet above the mount uh, that the temple is built upon, and Jesus is looking down on the temple, and it is a doomed temple. As Jesus left the temple that day, God left the temple. He's no longer there, and the temple will now be judged. Verse 4 tells us that these disciples just have to know. 
they're shocked. It's, 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 it's a shocking revelation that this temple is being torn down. And no doubt from the east gate to the Mount of Olives, there's this little valley. No doubt their mind was swirling with questions. So when they get on top of the Mount of Olives, these four disciples, two sets of brothers, they approach Jesus and they say to him, Jesus, in verse 4, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? If you're the kind of person that marks your Bible or underlines your scriptures or highlights a verse, pay very close attention to the two repeated times we see the phrase, these things, in verse 4. What are these things? Well, their question stems from the statement Jesus made as he exited the temple. It's all coming down. Not one stone will be left upon another. That shocking revelation is on their minds, and the second they can speak to Jesus, they say, Jesus, tell us about these things. What do you mean the temple's coming down? Tell us about these things. And so then Jesus begins to tell them about these things. Matthew's gospel records the broader nature of their question. In Matthew's gospel, verse 3 in chapter 24, they're recorded as saying, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. So there's it appears to be three questions, but you've got to understand, in the, in the first century mind of a Jew, they could not separate the destruction of the temple, the return of Jesus, and the end of the age. These three future realities in their mind was one complex event. From their perspective, as they looked at the future, they looked at both the near horizon and the far horizon as one cluster, one thing. They couldn't recognize that the fall of the temple and the return of Jesus would be separated. Now, you and I, when we're driving down Highway 62 and we look at the backside of of, uh, Roxy Ann, we know, and and we look at it being mirrored by Wagner Butte, for those of us from the Rogue Valley, we know that there's a valley separating those two mountains. I live in that valley. I look at Roxy Ann out of that mountain, and I look out of this window, and I look at Wagner Butte out of that window. When you're in Eagle Point, it's just one cluster of mountains. And these disciples are saying, when is all this going to happen? So Jesus starts to answer about future things. For us today, we live in this space of time between the destruction of the temple and the return of Jesus. We're between the two mountains, and we can differentiate because of our place in history. So they say, tell us when these things will be. And like I said recently, for 19 verses, Jesus focuses less on when and more of how he wants them to live in light of these future realities. And then this is very important. Look at verse 23. As he finishes telling them in verse 23 what the sign will will be when these things are about to be accomplished, Jesus says in verse 23, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Highlight, circle, underline. If you want to know why I interpret this text this way, why I believe these first verses are about the destruction of the temple and not about the future to us today is because I see what Jesus says being bracketed by the language of things. He tells them about the destruction of the temple. They say, tell us about these things. He tells them about these things and he says, I just told you all things. So the bracketing in verse 4 through 23 to me How I interpret that exegetically is that that is Jesus speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem again. I welcome the disagreement. And so what he's saying here is that he's looking at the the near horizon in my estimation. And so he offers these instructions to his disciples. He knows that these men are about to endure brutality. History tells us how hard it was for those men on that mountain on that day. Three of them were martyred for their death. One was exiled. 
were martyred for their faith, rather, and one was exiled. They were about to face unspeakable challenges and calamities and carnage. And so as Jesus is speaking to these men, he's telling them how to live in light of the difficult reality that awaited them. The words of Jesus to them then are as applicable to them as they are to us. We face our own set of challenges and calamities and carnage today, don't we? Not the same as then, but we face difficult things. And so as we look at these last three points of the sermon, I think they can speak powerfully into our lives today as well. Second thing Jesus says, in light of future challenge... In calamity and carnage, Jesus tells these men, do not be led astray nor alarmed. Satan's like a lion prowling around looking for whom he might devour when we go through hard... Well, how does a lion hunt? A lion looks for the weakened and the vulnerable and the exposed. They don't attack herds of strong bison. They attract the weak, vulnerable, and exposed, lonely bison. And calamity and carnage and challenge can sometimes, when, it wave, when those waves wash over us, it can, it can weaken us and it can cause us to separate. And what Jesus is saying to these men, you're going to face really hard things. Don't be led astray. The enemy loves to prowl around in this sort of environment. Don't be led astray and don't be alarmed when hard things happen. They're going to happen. He says to them that there's going to be false teachers and false Christs. And the history books tell us this is exactly what happened in that 38 years between the Olivet Discourse and the destruction of Jerusalem. He says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars that happened. And then he says in verse 7, this must take place, but the end is not yet. The end of what? They're asking about the temple, the end of the temple. He says there's going to be uprisings and there's going to be earthquakes and there's going to be famines and all of that happened. There was a famine in Rome. There were earthquakes during this time. Jesus' words were profoundly accurate. Some scholars say one of the most profound evidences of the divinity of Jesus is the astounding accuracy of this prophecy when it pertains to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus says that all of these things, false Christs, rumors of wars, kingdoms against kingdoms, nations against nations, earthquakes and famines, all of this are the beginning of of birth pains. What Jesus is telling his disciples, in other words, he's saying, don't be surprised when it hurts. Don't be surprised by future challenges and calamities and carnage. When this happens, he's saying, take heart. I have not abandoned you. I'm not asleep at the wheel. These things must happen. Now, I think about us today. You could take these few verses, and man, they apply to today, don't they? They apply to our times just as well. False teachers abound. Just turn on Christian television. I don't turn on Christian television because I end up throwing my shoes at the television in anger, so I don't do it. False teachers abound today, leading many astray. Wars? Rumors of wars? Do you know in the last 3,400 years, there's only been 268 years of peace? Did you know that 92% of human history going back 3,400 years has been afflicted with war? War is a human experience. In the 20th century alone, somewhere near 108 million people died in wars. As for nation rising against nation, Pastor Jeremy and I were speaking about that this week. The word for nation here is ethnos. This isn't nation as in a nation with a flag. This is about ethnic groups. This is about ethnicity. Ethnos will rise up against ethnos. How many ethnic cleansing genocidal horrors have we witnessed in the course of human history? Even in our time, at a much smaller level, it seems as if there are people hell-bent on creating racial division in our country and in our world. There's always been famines, always been earthquakes. 
Perhaps, as scholars, some scholars suggest, Jesus may have had both horizons in view here. He may have been speaking to them then, between now and the fall of Jerusalem, you're going to experience these things, but they certainly seem to apply today, don't they? Maybe Jesus had both horizons in view. So listen, here's what he says to them then, and I think he says it to us today. In the face of fear-inducing, challenge, challenging calamity and carnage, don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Third thing Jesus says, in light of these challenges that await in the future, he tells his disciples, be on guard and bear witness with endurance. He says to them, be on guard and bear witness with endurance. You can look at verses 9 through 13 as he unpacks this. Even if you look at verse 9 and 11, he's talking about uh, dealing with persecution. He says, be on guard. You're going to be delivered to councils. You're going to stand before these authorities. You're going to have to bear witness. And if you don't know what you're supposed to say, the Holy Spirit will speak for you. Say whatever is given to you. Don't be anxious. And when we read the book of Acts, that's what we see again and again and again as the Christian church spread across the known world. We see the disciples being brought before both Jewish and secular authorities. We see them faithfully bearing witness in the face of persecution. But what is interesting to me, sandwiched between verse 9 and 11, we see verse 10 where Jesus says, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. On both sides of that uh, is this teaching about how to deal with persecution. It's as if Jesus is saying that the preaching the gospel will be met with resistance. If you faithfully proclaim the gospel and you commit yourself to the Great Commission, it's going to be met with opposition. Prepare yourself for that. And nonetheless, the gospel went forth in a powerful way. You know, some 30 years later when the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, no, rather the church in Colossae, Colossae he, he, he mentioned that the gospel had come to the whole world. In like 62 AD, Paul writes that the gospel has gone to the whole world in, in Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6. And in verse 23, he says that the, that the gospel had been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And what Paul was saying in sort of a representative sense that the known world at that time, the Roman Empire, had been saturated with the gospel. And so on one hand, according to the Apostle Paul, the gospel had spread to the known world, to the ends of the Roman Empire, within the generation of those disciples. But we recognize that the gospel is to reach the outermost regions of the world. This mission call applies to us as well today. The Great Commission still applies to us. You and me, we are God's agents to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It begins in our home, it extends to our neighbor, and it goes to the ends of the world. I'm, remind, I'm reminded of what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3. He said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you. The Lord is wishing that none should perish. So as Jesus continues to, to call his church to be on guard and bear witness, he says it's going to require endurance. Look at verse 12. So the one who endures, or verse 13 rather, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And it's going to be hard. Hard things are going to happen. There's going to be families turning against families. There's going to be hatred and death. These are hard things that Jesus is telling his disciples are going to happen. Religious and political persecution. The call to remain faithful in the face of fierce opposition. Advancing the gospel. Families being torn apart. Being the object of hatred by all. You could say that that's true of us today as well. And as I read this text, I, I was reflecting this week and I thought, man, you know, and maybe you've never done this, but sometimes I read passages like this and I read that Jesus says, that, remember when they hate you, they hated me first. And, and I think to myself, 
why am I not being persecuted? I mean, I might have some slight inconveniences because of my faith, but why am I not being persecuted? And I, and I do self-reflection, and I wonder, in, in my desire to stay comfortable, have I sort of unconsciously or subconsciously watered down the gospel or the call of discipleship because I know the cost? And if I look at my life and it's all too comfortable, should that be a warning to me that maybe I'm not living the life of discipleship that Jesus has called me to live? I think one of the greatest enemies, or one of the greatest tools the enemy uses in the life of the Christian is comfort. So let the words of Jesus be an encouragement or an exhortation to us today. He's saying in the face of fear-inducing challenge and calamity and carnage, do not be led astray or alarmed. He's saying, don't. He's saying, be on guard and bear witness with endurance. Jesus is instructing his disciples how to live in difficult times. And finally, Jesus tells his disciples, in the face of the things you're about to face, which are awful, be prepared for the horror, but remain steadfast. I mean, I think about the times in my life when I've been on the precipice of what I knew was going to be a hard season, and I just sort of beg God, help this cup pass from me. I don't, want to, I don't want to walk this valley. I don't want to deal with this. This is just too hard. But Jesus tells his disciples, and maybe in a certain way he's telling us today, be prepared for hard things, but remain steadfast. Verse 14 has probably, as I read this week, one of the most difficult verses in Mark's gospel, maybe one of the most difficult verses in the entirety of the New Testament. Virtually nobody agrees on how to interpret verse 14. I'll give you my take. If you disagree, we can talk later. Verse 14, Jesus says, When you see the abomination of desolation standing where there, not, where there ought not be, where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This phrase, the abomination of desolation, comes out of the book of Daniel, which is an Old Testament prophecy, where the prophet Daniel mentions it three times in chapters 9, 11, and 12. The, this word in Hebrew, which is how it was written initially in the book of Daniel. This word abomination, it means a, a detestable thing or a detestable idol. And if you look at the Old Testament, especially the book of Deuteronomy, five times in Deuteronomy, this word abomination is associated with idol worship that is offensive to God. The historical books, First and Second Kings, talk about idolatry being an abomination to God. The prophets talk about idolatry being an abomination to God. This term, abomination, at its heart has idolatry. The abomination of desolation means an abomination so detestable, an act of idol worship so detestable that it would cause the temple to be abandoned by the people of God and would thus rightly provoke desolation or complete and utter emptiness. Now I know that there has been much debate about Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9, 70 weeks. How do we interpret those? I've listened to so much teaching on that profound, compelling Teaching. I'm not, even, I'm not throwing that teaching out the window, but it is, it is so debated over, and it's so challenging to interpret. But there are some things about what Daniel says in chapter 9 that aren't very challenging, that are pretty clear to all interpreters. And one of them is that Daniel is talking in that prophecy about one who will so desecrate the temple that it will cause the temple to be desolate. In quoting Daniel's prophecy, scholars generally agree that the abomination of desolation was something that, that took place in 167 B.C. in one regard. And it seems, though, here Jesus is speaking about future fulfillments also. In 167 B.C., there was this, this Greek king, this Hellenistic king, 
Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, I keep pronouncing that word wrong, he was, he was treating Israel with violence and contempt. They, they rebelled against him. And so Antiochus comes to Jerusalem. He, he enters the temple, his, him and his forces. They, they prevent the Israelites in, in 167 BC from, from, from offering sacrifices. And what they do, what him and his troops do, is they set up this altar to Zeus. And then in the temple, they slaughter a pig to the god Zeus. It is the definition of Abomination. It is the grossest act of idol worship in the place that is meant to be this beautiful spot, this holy place that was at the very heart of Israel. And so these disciples who would have been sitting with Jesus on the Mount of Olives on that day, no doubt would have had this event in their mind. It was the spark of the Maccabean revolt. They would have known that that had taken place on the mountain they were looking at. But Jesus isn't speaking here about a past event. He's speaking about something that is coming, this abomination of desolation. So it's not necessarily about what happened with Antiochus. So, so what is he speaking about here? Luke's gospel is helpful. Luke's gospel expands on what Jesus says. Luke records Jesus as saying to his disciples on this day, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know its desolation is near. And indeed that day came. History books record it. If you read Josephus' description of this, the historian Josephus of the destruction of Jerusalem, it's heart-wrenching on how awful this was, this abomination. The Roman forces did surround Jerusalem in 70 AD. They eventually did enter the temple. Roman soldiers were always an abomination because they carried with them idolatrous images of the emperor who they worshipped as a god. Those armies brought desolation to the city of Jerusalem and to the holy temple. They leveled the city. They entered the Holy of Holies. They defiled it. The Romans completely overran the city. They torched it. They starved out the, the, the Israelites. You read his, his, the historical accounts of the starvation of the people of Jerusalem. There's an account that Josephus writes about of a woman who ate her child to survive. It was awful. Jesus, when he foresaw this horrible uh, reality that was facing the city of Jerusalem, if you remember, in Luke 19, as he's entering the city, what does he do? Jeremy talked about this several weeks ago. He wept because he knew how horrible the desolation of the city was going to be. The blood was going to run through the streets. There's reports of bodies that were decaying, being thrown over the walls of Jerusalem and stacking up outside the city. This was an awful day for the people of the city of Jerusalem. And though, because of the warning of Jesus here in this teaching, because Jesus told his disciples to flee when they saw these things, when the city was surrounded, many, many lives were in fact saved. Many Christians living in Jerusalem heeded the warnings of Jesus and did exactly what he said. They didn't go down and grab their cloak. They left. They fleed to the mountains and they lived. There's a first century historian, a church historian named Eusebius, who writes, the church at Jerusalem left the city and moved to a town called Pella. Now listen, I recognize there's some of you here who've only ever read these teachings to mean a future event. And a lot of your eschatology and the way in which you see the things unfolding in the future are tied to that interpretation of this passage. I'm not a heretic, I promise. And, and, I, and I might be wrong. But regardless, to these disciples on that day, these four men, and as this was passed on to the other disciples through oral tradition, Jesus was warning them. He loved them. He was warning them, saying, there's going to be some really hard things, and I'm going to give you some very specific instructions for how you can live and survive and even thrive in the face of this opposition you're going to experience. 
Now think about us today. How are we to respond to the teaching of Jesus? Now listen, when Jesus gives instructions concerning future events, you and I need to take heed. We can't fall in this ditch of ignoring it. We need to listen to the teachings of Jesus. His purpose in teaching us and revealing future things is not so that we can have all of our curiosities answered. I do not think it's helpful, and this is, this is my conviction, I do not think it's helpful to have a newspaper in one hand and an open Bible in the other hand and obsess about how this political figure or that political figure is somehow going to be connected. I don't think it's, if we obsess about that, I do not think it's helpful because that's not where Jesus focused his teaching here. He focused his teaching to his disciples on how they ought to live in light of those future realities. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we come into this text is how do I live in light of the future realities? Now next week we're going to get into the parousia and the second coming. We're going to talk about that sort of stuff. But Jesus here is giving a relatively direct response to his disciples, not so much settling into when, but addressing how they are to live in the face of challenge and carnage and calamity. And we're going to experience that on this side of glory, aren't we? We're going to experience those things. In the face of fear-inducing challenge, calamity, and carnage, Jesus said to them then, And I think it speaks right into our context today. He says to them then, but he says to us right now, don't be led astray or alarmed. Don't be led astray or alarmed. Be on guard and bear witness with endurance, church. Be prepared for horrors, but remain steadfast. That word steadfast, it doesn't mean you hang on with your last thread and hope to make it. It's a thriving in the face of opposition. And so if the point of the text is less about what is happening in the future and more about how we ought to live in light of future realities, honestly, it's very secondary what camp you find yourself in, whether it's camp one, camp two, or camp three. We can hang out. We can be friends. We can debate and discuss, and I hope we do. The exhortation of Christ is the same regardless of your interpretive lens on this text. It's about how Jesus wants his church to live in challenging times. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Be on guard. Bear witness with endurance. Be prepared There's going to be hard things that remain steadfast. Now, I know there's lots of grand things that make the headlines that we've talked about, pandemics and wars and such. But I'm I'm very mindful right now of the great tribulations that befall us individually. They don't make the headlines, but they make the headline of your life. I've had conversations with many of you. I've sat with some of you as you've walked through some of those great tribulations in your life. Death of a loved one. Divorce debilitating disease or affliction, heart-wrenching disappointment, betrayal, crippling depression, financial crisis. Great tribulation comes to each and every one of us throughout the course of our lives. I'm mindful of what Jesus said to his disciples in the Upper Room Discourse in the Gospel of John. He's assuring them before he leaves them, he's assuring them that their sorrow will be turned to joy. He's assuring them that he's overcome the world. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 16, 33. I'll leave you with this. Jesus said to his disciples then, he says to us today, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Jesus tells you today, don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Be on guard and bear witness with endurance. Be prepared for hard things, but remain steadfast. Pray with me. Father, 
I'm thankful for the great opportunity you give us week in and week out of gathering in this place and sitting under the authority of your word. And, and God, you know that in my own life, I've had fear and trepidation about this teaching, knowing that there is such disagreement within the Christian communities about how to interpret this. God, I pray right now that you would bring unity to our church, God, that the men and women in this church who maybe find themselves with different perspectives on this passage, that we would recognize that we are not enemies, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that collectively, we as a church would, would be on guard and would remain watchful and with a great hope in our hearts, God, we would pray that, Lord Jesus, you would come soon. God, give us the endurance and the faithfulness and the courage and all the things we're going to need to not be led astray or alarmed in difficult times. God, give us what you need to by your spirit that we could remain on guard and faithfully bear witness to the truth of the gospel to the world around us, God. Help us to to endure the hard things that await all of us. And God, may we, for your glory, remain steadfast. And ultimately, we just look to you, Jesus, as our perfect example. You endured the the suffering of the cross. Suffering always precedes glory, and our great hope is the glory that awaits. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.